The scripture today is from Romans chapter 1. We'll be reading verses 16 to 18 in a minute. This is the second of two messages in celebration of the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. And we're focusing our attention on two questions that were answered then, which changed the church and changed the world. Last week our question was, who decides what is truth? In other words, to whom or to what should we look for authoritative information about God and salvation? And we saw that the answer is the Bible, which is the very Word of God, written and preserved for us. That's the authority. So today we're asking... What does this authoritative Bible say about the way of salvation? Specifically, what must I do to be saved? That's the question that was on the mind of the terrified Philippian jailer as Paul and Silas were in the prison and the earthquake happened and the doors all flew open and everybody's shackles came off and he thought they were all escaping. He was going to kill himself. And uh, and Paul said, don't do it, don't do it, we're still here. And he falls down and he's overwhelmed by what's happening. He says, what must I do to be saved? So that's where that question came from. But Martin Luther was asking that question. So were many other people 500 years ago during the area that we call the Reformation. And I hope that that's a question you've asked. What must I do to be saved? Because that is the most important question that's facing all of us, as I hope that you will see. So, 2,000 years ago, the jailer got his answer. 500 years ago, Luther got his answer. And today we're going to hear the same answer (laughs) one more time. And it has to do with the good news of Jesus Christ, which was lost for a time and recovered by Luther and others. So I've chosen Romans 1, 16 to 18 as our main text because verse 17 is the passage that the Lord used to transform Luther and reform the church in what is called his tower experience, where he finally understood it. So I'm going to have a generous helping of Luther quotes this morning as we go back to his era. But let's read. Would you follow with me as we read Romans 1? 16 to 18. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed. From faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Let's pray. Many 
people would have loved to have heard what we've just read and understood it. Lord, would you open up our ears to it today? For some, this is some this is old hat we know this we've heard this a million times but hearing is not the same thing as believing it's not the same thing as trusting it's not the same thing as being born again we must believe so or would you open up our hearts again today give us a fresh view of what you've written here that we too may have our own tower experience in Jesus' name, amen. To answer the main question, what must I do to be saved, we'll, we'll get at it in stages. We'll ask actually three other questions first. Here's the first question to ask. What do I need to be saved from? <laughs> what do I need to be saved from? That word saved implies that we're in danger of some kind, that something terrible is looming on our horizon, that we can't manage on our own. We need a rescuer to come in and help us, like the National Guard airlifting people off of roofs in flooded neighborhoods of Houston for Hurricane Harvey. So is there a danger that faces you and me? Verse 18 says there is one. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. There it is, wrath. The wrath of God. That's what we need to be saved from. At least all who have ungodliness and unrighteousness in their lives. And as the Apostle Paul will go on to say in chapter 3, that's all of us. None is righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. To sin is to do anything in thought, word, or action that deviates from the revealed moral will of God in Scripture. And we've all done it in moments of anger, moments of neglect, Moments of selfishness, moments of not loving God or our neighbor, many other things. Therefore, God's word tells us that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness, which Jesus assures us in the Gospels is carried out in a real place called hell. He said in Mark 9, 43, It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. We can debate if that's actual flames or not, but one thing that is certain, it is unquenchable, which means forever. And it is painful because it's like burning in flames. That is what we face, unless there is a rescue, unless we are saved from it. Now, that's a pretty sobering way to start this sermon. <laughs> I realize that. 
But we have to start there because if there is no such danger facing us, then we didn't need a reformation because we don't need the church and we don't need the gospel message of the church. And the reality is that most people don't think that they are in any such danger. The whole idea of God's wrath seems positively medieval, (laughs) doesn't it? Something superstitious people believed in the Middle Ages, but in our, our age of science and technology and enlightenment, we know better. I saw a picture of hell that was drawn in the 1500s or 1400s or sometime back then. And it shows people in cauldrons being jabbed by demons with pitchforks as flames leap up all around. And that was, that was how people pictured hell back then. And we look at that today with our 21st century minds and we think, well, that's cartoonish. Uh, we shouldn't take that seriously. The whole idea of God's wrath is not really taken seriously. I, I looked up the definition of wrath in my word processor dic- dictionary called Oxford Press. It defines it this way. Uh, wrath is extreme anger, parentheses, chiefly used for humorous or rhetorical effect. So in our modern day, we use the word wrath when we want to make a joke or when we want to use a figure of speech, but we don't think about it as a real thing. Well, Paul isn't using the word wrath for humorous or rhetorical effect. He's using it for a sobering effect. Our sin is a crime against our Creator, and there is an appropriate punishment for it, the revealing of the wrath of God against unrighteousness and eternal judgment for our sins. That's what we need to be saved from, because that is what's revealed against all unrighteousness, including yours and mine. So let's ask the second question. What must I possess to be saved? What must I possess to be saved? If you were on the rooftop in a flood and you possessed a motorboat, you could be saved from the danger that way. So is there anything that if we had it, we could be saved from God's eternal punishment for our sins? Yes, there is. That something is called righteousness. If the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness, then it stands to reason that it is not revealed against righteousness. If you do not sin, but instead you do everything in thought, word, and action in obedience to the revealed will of God, then there is nothing to punish. You can push off in the boat called righteousness and be saved. As verse 17 ends, it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. We'll say more about the by faith part later, but notice that it's the righteous who will live, not the unrighteous. If we would be saved from the wrath of God, we must be righteous. Other scriptures bear this out. If we look at the book of Revelation, chapter 22, 
We read about this eternal city of God in the new heaven and the new earth, the place that's the eternal residence of those who are saved. It's described this way, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. In other words, you can't be unclean and go to heaven. You can't have any stain of sin on your soul when you pass through the gates of death or you will be condemned. That's the thought that haunted Martin Luther. He was walking on a road in a thunderstorm and a lightning bolt hit so close to him that it knocked him down. And in terror, in that moment, he vowed that I'm going to become a monk. Now, why did he do that? Because he knew he wasn't righteous and that he had just narrowly missed encountering the judgment of God after death. And it was said in those days that if you become a monk, you can restore your innocence and be washed from your sins. (laughs) Well, you and I need righteousness to be saved. No stain on your record. We need to keep God's commandments a to z now you can immediately see our problem i hope if it is only the righteous who will live but none is righteous then what hope do we really have because it would seem that we must be excluded one and all from the celestial city no one thing unclean thing can enter but i'm unclean i'm not righteous So what hope do we have? And yet Scripture speaks about people as being there, as having been rescued. Hebrews 12, 22-23 describes a heavenly scene. It's an invisible scene that's going on right now, and he pictures you as being connected to it somehow. The writer says, You have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. That sounds hopeful. The spirits of the righteous made perfect. Nothing unclean in them. No stain on their record rejoicing with the angels in the city of the living God. So that means there must be a way (laughs) for people like us who are not righteous to have our spirits made perfect, to be accepted by God into his celestial city, to be viewed by him as righteous. We have a theological name for that. It's called justification. Justification is that state of a person in which God justifies you. That is, he declares you to be just or righteous and thinks of your sins as forgiven and that you have a perfect righteousness with no stain on your record. And according to the writer of Hebrews, that really happens. That has already happened. To many, many people, the spirits of the righteous made perfect. Well, I want to get in on that. Don't you? 
do you want to get in on spirits of the righteous made perfect and be in this celestial city, in this rejoicing place with God forever? I want in on that. I hope you want in on that. So the obvious question is, how do we get there? How do I obtain this righteousness to be saved? That's our question. And this really is the key to the whole thing. This is what the debate was all about in the 1500s. And I refer you to Michael Reeves' book, The Unquenchable Flame, for a good summary of this whole topic and the history of the Reformation. But the big question was, and I think still is, how do I get into this state of justification such that God sees me as righteous and I'm saved? How do I get there? Well, the Roman Catholic Church, which was the only church in Western Europe at that time, had an answer for that. And we'll look at their answer first. Their answer was essentially this, and still is so far as I know. Their answer was, you must become righteous by a combination of faith and works. That's how you get there. Faith and works. You must believe in Christ. That's necessary, but you must also acquire your own righteousness by doing certain things. Let me read from the Council of Trent, which is what the Catholic Church convened in 1547 to counter the teachings of the Reformation. This is where they made clear what the church believes about justification. This comes from session 6, chapter 7, where they write, Justification itself is not remission of sins merely, but also the sanctification and renewal of the inner man through the voluntary reception of the grace and of the gifts, whereby man of unjust becomes just, and of an enemy a friend, so that he may be an heir according to the hope of life everlasting. So what that says is, justification, the state of God viewing you as righteous, includes sanctification. It includes the unjust becoming just. It includes your renewal. Your change. You becoming more righteous through means, the means being the voluntary reception of the grace and of the gifts, which is a reference to the sacraments. In particular, baptism, the mass, penance. You become a renewed person. You actually change. You grow in sanctification. And if you do that, you become an heir according to the life of hope, uh, hope of life everlasting. Now the council also said faith in Christ, Christ is required. In chapter, in session eight, it says that the or chapter eight, it says that the faith is the beginning of human salvation, the foundation and the root of all justification. So nobody is saved without faith in Christ. That's the root. But it is not faith alone that justifies you. It is faith and becoming just in your actual life as you partake of the sacraments of the church. That was the church's answer. Here's what that looked like to the average churchgoer in the Middle Ages who did not have a Bible to tell them any different because nobody had one. They couldn't read it anyway. They didn't know Latin. 
Here's what it would look like for them, and they're relying entirely on the church to tell them, what must I do to be saved? Your justification was said to begin at baptism, in which a person is admitted to the church, and the grace of justification is poured into your soul, typically as an infant. So, it's a good start. It's a cleansing of your sins. But it still remains for you to assent to and cooperate with the grace of Christ to such a degree that you actually become righteous in your daily life. That includes going to the weekly or even daily mass, as the church service was called, where in communion Christ's body was thought to be sacrificed again and again to freshly atone for your sins. However, that wasn't considered to be enough. Starting in 1215 A.D., the church required all Christians to confess their sins regularly to a priest where the conscience could be probed for sins and wickedness could be rooted out from your life. The priest would ask a list of questions back then, such as, are your prayers alms and religious activities done more to hide your sins and impress others than to please God? That's a very good question, isn't it? Because it recognizes that sin involves not just what you do, but your motive for doing it. Jesus confronted the Pharisees with the same issue. He said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. So having confessed your sins, the priest would grant absolution, pronouncing Christ's forgiveness, and then assign for you something to do as penance. That's a voluntary self-punishment or good work that you do to satisfy the justice of God, which is why they're called works of satisfaction. By doing this, you escape what's called temporal punishment, in which... You receive consequences in this life, or if not in this life, then in the afterlife, in a place called purgatory. Purgatory is a Catholic doctrine that says there is a purging place of punishment. Where you go if you die with any impurity on your soul. Any unfinished business, so to speak, between you and God, if you have any remaining sin which needs to be satisfied by God's justice, it will be purged from you over time, perhaps millions of years, if you were very bad. But it will go on until such a time as God looks at you and sees that you have become purged of all your sin and are now righteous. And then you will be one of the spirits of the righteous made perfect. So to sum up, what was the church's answer to the question, how do I get righteousness to be saved? Answer, through faith in Christ and my own righteous works. There's no salvation outside of Christ, but there's no salvation outside of your own righteousness either. That was the answer. Now, you can imagine what effect this had on some people with a healthy conscience and a, and a good understanding of the Word of God. 
Many people felt pretty good about how faithfully they had kept the sacraments and just assumed that because of, their, of, of those things that their stay in purgatory would be relatively short or maybe you could skip it altogether if you just did the right things. But not those people who really understood how deep sin goes in our hearts and our lives, just how high God's standard really is. Martin Luther was one of those people who understood that. He read the great commandment, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. And he reasoned, well, then the great transgression must be not to do that, to do anything that is not loving the Lord your God with all your heart. Even if you do good things, but you do them half-heartedly, that's a great transgression. That's how he reasoned it. And I think rightly, This plagued him continually. He saw that no matter how hard he tried to do everything right, to love God with all his heart, he just couldn't do it. In self-punishment and penance, he was more zealous than all the other monks around him. He almost starved himself to death. He almost froze to death because he felt like that was was what he needed to do to satisfy God's righteousness. He was unholy. Something needed to be done about it. So he would be punishing himself all the time. He would take as many as six hours to confess his sins from the previous day. In religious duties, he tried to be like the Apostle Paul as a Pharisee. As to righteousness under the law, blameless, that's what he was shooting for. He didn't miss anything. None of the the services, none of the prayers, he had to do everything. But the harder he tried, the more he saw he didn't have it in himself to be holy enough for God. So he sunk into despair and anger at the unfairness of it all. That God requires righteousness in us, but it's an impossible standard to meet. (laughs) So listen to what he said about his frame of mind back then. He said, Though I lived as a monk without reproach, I felt that I was a sinner before God with an extremely disturbed conscience. I could not believe that he was placated by my satisfaction. I did not love. Yes, I hated the righteous God who punishes sinners and secretly, if not blasphemously, certainly murmuring greatly. Friends, I think if you really take the Bible seriously about God's standards of righteousness, that's the only logical response you can have. If there's not some other way to get a perfect record that you need to be saved, then you should have an extremely disturbed conscience when you look in your own heart. Because God doesn't grade on a curve. You must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Jesus said that in the Sermon on the Mount. The idea that justification is a combination of faith and your works, a combination of God's grace and your merits, is not good news. That's bad news. That's bad news because if, it any, if any of it depends on your performance, you will not be saved. You don't have it in it. I don't have it in, in me to meet God's standards. Thankfully, there is another way. <laughs> and Luther found it. And many have found it. 
in Romans 1.17, as well as other places. So let me read it again, starting in verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, that is in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now at first, Luther thought that phrase, the righteousness of God, meant that God is righteous in punishing the unrighteous sinner. In other words, he thought the good news revealed in the gospel is that God doesn't let anyone get away with sin. That only the righteous will live and only the, and only the blameless will get into heaven. But God will righteously judge everyone else. Now, those things are true. But they're not complete and they're not what Romans 1.17 actually means. What Luther couldn't understand was the phrase, the righteous shall live by faith. In the original Greek, it's more literally, the one who by faith is righteous shall live. The one who by faith is righteous shall live. In other words, the means by which you become righteous in God's eyes is faith in Jesus Christ as Savior. It is not faith plus works. It is faith and faith alone that gets you into the state of justification in which God sees your sins as forgiven and considers you to be righteous. In other words, genuine faith in Christ as your Savior is sufficient by itself for God to count you as righteous and save you. Your good works are not necessary for God to justify you. Justification is by faith and faith alone apart from works. Now we can ask, well, how does that work? What about my sin? Doesn't something need to be done about that? I mean, if we've committed crimes against God, surely he can't just say they don't matter. In fact, he even says the wages of sin is death in Romans chapter 6. If God's a righteous judge, as surely he is, he can't just ignore my sins. And how can he count me righteous when, in fact, I am not righteous? Here's how. It's because through faith we receive Christ's own perfect righteousness as belonging to us. And Christ takes on our sins as belonging to Him. Sins for which God punished Him on the cross in our place. The theological term is imputation. Our sins are imputed or charged to Christ and his perfection, his righteousness, is imputed or credited to us. And this is received by faith. That's, this, this is the transaction of 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, he made him, that is, he made Christ, to be sin, who know no sin. So that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. God's own righteousness 
becomes ours. That's, that's the righteousness of verse 17. In the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. What righteousness? Christ's righteousness given to me by faith. Assigned to me, becoming mine. God seeing me as if it belongs to me. As if I had done it. That's what's revealed in the gospel. He takes your sin and you receive his righteousness. To use the language of college exams, which some of us here can relate to. He takes your F and you get his A. (laughs) He takes your zero. (laughs) He gives you his 100%. His record becomes ours. The moment, the moment that we put our faith in Jesus Christ. Instantaneously, that record is yours now. Faith is the instrument by which we receive it in order to be saved. This is exactly what the Apostle Paul means in Philippians 3, 8 and 9. He says, For his sake, that is Christ's sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law or the sacraments or any other thing that I could do. Not that kind of righteousness. I don't want that. But that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God. That depends on faith. That's the righteousness. Paul says, I would much rather have that than anything else in the world. Anything that I could chalk up by my good behavior, by my doing all the right things. This is so much better. This is the only answer. The righteousness from God. Friends, the good news of the gospel is that the righteousness that God requires of us is the righteousness that he himself gives us, received by faith. That is the righteousness of God revealed in the gospel. That is the power of God for salvation. It's his power. It's not our power. And that is such a relief. (laughs) It was to Martin Luther. Here's what Luther said once he understood Romans 1.17. At last, by the mercy of God, meditating day and night, I gave heed to the context of the words. Namely, in it the righteousness of God is revealed. As it is written, he who through faith is righteous shall live. There I began to understand that the righteousness of God is that by which the righteous lives by a gift of God. Namely, by faith. And this is the meaning. The righteousness of God is revealed by the gospel, namely the passive righteousness with which merciful God justifies us by faith. As it is written, he who through faith is righteous shall live. Here I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through open gates. (laughs) If we really grab hold of the true gospel, that is the effect it will have on our souls. It is freeing. 
It is freeing. It's going through gates into paradise. So let me close with how this makes a difference in your life and in mine. If your faith is in Christ to save you, not in your performance of anything, then gone is the fear of not measuring up. Because Christ has measured up for you. Gone is the need to do something to get rid of your guilt because Christ has already atoned for it. Gone is the need to satisfy God's justice for your daily failures because Christ already fully satisfied God's justice by drinking the cup of wrath on the cross. Gone is the fear that God will reject sinful you Because your acceptance is not based on your performance. It is based entirely on Christ's performance, which is perfect. So if you're here this morning and you've put your hope in performance, if you're looking for something within you that you can hold up to God and say, is this good enough? If you're hoping that God grades on a curve and that He'll lower His standards for you, then hear this appeal from a voice from the past. I want to quote Thomas Wilcox in his tract, Honey Out of the Rock. Despairing sinner, you look on your right hand and on your left saying, who will show us any good? You are tumbling over all your duties and professions to patch up a righteousness to save you. Look at Christ now. Look to Him and be saved. There's none else. He is the Savior, and there's none beside Him. Look anywhere else, and you are undone. God will look at nothing but Christ, and you must not look at anything else. (laughs) Oh, friends, look to Christ in faith and enter the gates of paradise, counted righteous in Him. Do it, because hell is real, but the eternal city is real. And this is the way into it. This is not just a word for people who are unbelievers who need to put their trust in Jesus for the first time. This is for you and me who have already believed. Because as long as we live, we are always going to be tempted to go back to our natural ways and look inside ourselves for some hope of acceptance before God. I can tell you what that looks like from experience. (laughs) When I first became a bivocational pastor in 1996, I took on the responsibilities of ministry with a lot of self-reliance. I'm going to do this right was my thinking. Uh, But it didn't take long to see all my weaknesses, all my failures, all my sins. And back then, I didn't know how to take my sins to the cross and let the blood and the righteousness of Jesus plead for me. Instead, I tried to atone for my sins and my failures by doing better. Uh, I wanted to feel less guilty by being less sinful. It's really not that much different from what Luther was doing before he learned the gospel. 
But the problem with that approach is that it still depends on me. It makes me my own savior if I get rid of my guilt by better performance. That's me. That's not Jesus. And it didn't work because the more I tried to do better, the more I realized that it wasn't good enough. And I came to the realization of Isaiah who said that all of our righteous deeds are what? Filthy rags. When you compare them to the standard, love the Lord your God with all your heart. I became an angry, frustrated pastor. <laughs> Was a believer, but I had reverted back. It wasn't until I went to the pastor's college in 2002 where I learned almost as if it were the first time <laughs> That I don't get rid of my guilt by doing better. I get rid of my guilt by taking it to the cross. Where Christ was counted guilty in my place. Where he bore the penalty for me. And I, I love this quote from Luther in this regard. He said, <clears throat> So when the devil throws your sins in your face and declares that you deserve death and hell, Tell him this, I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? <laughs> for I know one who suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, Son of God. And where he is, there I shall be also. That's how you deal with guilt. If you find yourself guilty and ashamed at some recent failure, don't look to yourself. Look to Christ who made satisfaction on your behalf. Now, does the Lord want us to obey and pursue holiness and righteousness in our lives? Sure He does. <clears throat> but not with the motivation to deal with our guilt. That is called self-atonement. <laughs> and that is actually a denial of the cross of Christ. Rather, the gospel of justification by faith frees you to pursue holiness from the only motive that is true obedience, which is out of love for God who has been so merciful to us. So, what is the answer to our main question? What must I do to be saved? We can do no better than the answer that Paul and Silas gave the Philippian jailer. Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. Believe. God declares you righteous through faith and faith alone. So may the freedom of this gospel, recovered in the Reformation, be a constant pathway to paradise for all of us and a stimulus to love and good deeds. Let's pray. Thank you, O oh Lord, that you've created this way of escape. How in our sinful hearts we want it to be some other way. It's insane, but we would rather get there by our own works than to receive it by faith. But that's how messed up we are. And that's why you have to come in and do a miracle. And show us 
open up our eyes and our hearts to see your glory. And so I pray that right now you would do that, Lord. If there are any here who haven't put their faith, who are still holding on to righteousness, trying to patch it up themselves, let it drop right now and impart faith to believe and to receive you wholly. And those of us, Lord, who have but still struggle going back to condemnation, put a new pathway in our brain (laughs) where as soon as we sense that condemnation coming on, we go right back to you and say, you made satisfaction for me. Make us happy in those thoughts today. In Jesus' name, amen.